Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Star podcast, where we bring you your ABCs, adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet in the warm and beautiful Eastern Sierra. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is our producer, Doug. Good morning, Doug. Hey, Doug. Good morning. You call it, you call it warm? It, it's warm. Well, I thought it was warm when I got up at four. Well, you have to give it some hours. You have to give the sun some hours to like actually rise up and okay. get warm. Okay? All right. I will admit it is it's certainly much warmer than it was four months ago. That's for sure. Well, you know, we might only get like a week of this. Yeah, <laughs> so we've yeah. got to celebrate it while we can. Yep. I love it. I have to tell you, I, this is one of my favorite times of year because it's warm enough during the day and still cool enough at night. You know? Yes. Yeah. For sure. And Gorgeous. it's. Right, walking outside of my house, everything is in bloom. The lilacs, all the, all the flowers are in bloom, and it smells so good outside. It just, I love it. That's awesome. I'm enjoying it. So, of course, I planted that rosemary that we bought at the big trees. Yeah. And my husband made fun of me for the way I planted it. <laughs> Why? Did you plant it upside so I down? To, I have to replant it. He said I didn't dig the hole in the ground enough, but. You know, whatever. <laughs> I think it looks good. Rosemaries are hardy, hardy plants. So I'm sure they it'll be are. Fine. And I think it's going to be just fine. But um, we're not here to talk about that. We did have another adventure out to, in the Chalfont area, though. Yeah. Speaking of big trees, we were yeah. out there um, on Highway 6 over on the eastern side of the county. We also found a new place to stop and eat, right? Yes, we did. And it's so cute and so much fun. Do you want to? Yeah. It's, it's called Flo's Diner. Um, for those of us who remember, what was it, Alice, the TV show? There was a character called Flo on You're Alice. You're dating yourself. I'm way, I've dated myself so much on this podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's who it might be named after. I don't know. I don't know. But it's a very 50s themed diner out in the little kind of village of Chalfont on Highway 6 out there. Yes. And it was really cute. And, you know, de like you said, definitely had that kind of 50s diners vibe and really nice, big outdoor patio. There was indoor seating as well. There's even a little store, like a yeah. little convenience store, like if you're just like running by. But um, it the menu is very eclectic and very fun. Great sandwiches. It looked like the pizza was really good, too. We're going to have to mm -hmm. go back and try some pizza in that great outdoor seating. Um, and, yeah, you know, Chalfont is kind of out there by itself, right? So yeah. there's a place, there's a small market up at Benton further to the north, or you can drive south into Bishop. But if you just need sugar or coffee or milk or a soda <laughs> and you live in <laughs> Chalfont, now you have a place to go and a place to stop and eat, which is um, kind of cool. Yes, and we we did not order the pizza, but the table next to us did. And when I saw it, I was bummed that we didn't get the pizza because it looked really good. <laughs> next time, <laughs> next time for sure. But we had we ordered we each got a different sandwich, and you know it was a diner. Yeah. So I 
I'm not embarrassed to say I had to go with the most dinery thing on the menu. And that was like this Elvis sandwich with banana and peanut butter. And <laughs> I don't know if there was bacon on there. I can't remember, but it was it was not very healthy, but it was really good. I was going to say it was not something I would normally see Stacy Adler ordering in a restaurant. No, so you were never. clearly enjoying yourself. I wanted to get the full diner experience. <laughs> well, it was a fun little adventure, right? And and yes, you know, not to say that it's unexpected, but it's really cool. You know, the Highway Six corridor from Bishop all the way up to the state line is pretty sparsely populated. There's Benton Station, which is also a great little diner to eat with um, burgers and what have you, and another little market along the way, but. This is just a neat thing to have out there because now there's another option to stop and get gas and get some food and and what have you. And I, you know, it's a beautiful place to sit and eat. You got the White Mountains right off the back of you there. And yeah, it's gorgeous. It, it was. It was really pretty. We were out there on a beautiful day. And yeah, I mean, it's the perfect, it's the perfect place to stop if you're you know, especially if you go to big trees and you're out there shopping or you're going to, you know, get stuff for your garden, you yeah. want to f- get some nutrition before you go home and start planting things. So right. Flo's Diner is the place to stop. It's right there in Chalfont. You're going north or south on six. You can't miss you it. can't miss it. Yep. So that was Check a it fun out. adventure. Yeah. We'll be right back. Oxygen, a colorless Odorless reactive gas, the chemical element of atomic number 8 and the life-supporting component of the air. Starved. Suffering a severe and damaging lack of basic material and cultural benefits. Oxygen Starved Podcast. A colorless, odorless, culture-packed, nutritious podcast considering books, describing Mono County adventure, and engaging in informative conversation with colorful Eastside Sierra locals. Download it now. Welcome back, listeners. We are at the book portion of the podcast, the B in the ABCs. And this time, Stacy and I, for the second time in a row, read the same book. Right, Stace? Yes. I like when we read the same book. I like I to have the conversation about the book with you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as I do you, which is pretty good because we've been doing a podcast for nearly two years yeah, on this whole true. thing. <laughs> <laughs> so this time, you know, we hadn't, we had not talked about short stories or at least not in a very long, very time. long time. Yeah. So we decided to pick a short story collection that um, is somewhat well known. And we each read it, and we came away some, with some, you know, really good responses or reactions to this. And the book that we chose was 10th of December by George Saunders. Now, had you heard of George Saunders before, Stace? I, I had not. This is my introduction to him. Yeah. You know, he has been around a while, um, and he has a really interesting background. I think you did some research on him, too. Yes. But in terms of his writing career, which I think was his second career, he is probably most known for essays and short stories, but he 
started to really hit American mainstream when this collection, The Tenth of December, was released in 2013. It was nominated for the National Book Award. So he got a lot of visibility. And then about five years later, four or five years later, he came out with his first novel, which was called Lincoln in the Bardo, which hit the bestseller list. And a lot of people read that book and found it um, really a touching, touching story. So that's kind of how he is probably most known to most Americans today. We both chose to go back and read 10th of December. I, it was a great opportunity for, I think it was my choice, right, Stace? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can blame Your me. Your recommendation, yes. It was my recommendation. Yeah. Um, it was an opportunity to revisit it. I hadn't read it since it first came out, and I, it's one of the few signed first editions that I own. So Ooh, cool. um, it was kind of a special thing to go back to this collection. And I really had not read any of those stories since 2013. So it was kind of like reading some of them again for the first time in a very long time. Well, for me, you know, obviously is my first exposure to Saunders, who was a, a scientist in his previous right? life. And you don't see any real reference to that in in these stories. Um, But, you know, I was I was kind of surprised at the the relevance of some of the themes to what is happening today. You know, even though we're we're nearly 10 years in some cases for some of the stories, plus 10 years past when they were originally published. So, yeah. you know, still a lot of relevant themes. Well, a lot of things that are just universal and timeless in a way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the things that, um, you know, people should probably know about Saunders is that, you know, he is very, he's been very open about what writers influence him. He's, he loves Kurt Vonnegut. He is a writer's writer. A lot of writers like his writing. You know, Juno Diaz talks about him, Lauren Moore, others. Um, but he is a fan of the kind of like the 1800s, 1900s Russian novelists mm-hmm. and short story yeah. writers like Kafka, Gogol, those others. They kind of have a really dark sense of humor. And I don't know about you, but I see that in his writing. Yeah, well, I had to get used to that. You know, I had to put myself in a space to be open to that, right? And one thing that I had said said to you when we were talking before we started recording this was you he doesn't make any apologies to his readers. He doesn't he has a great respect for the reader. Yeah. That the reader is going to go on this journey with him and the reader is going to meet him like more than halfway, I felt like right. you have to get into his headspace and be with him. It's, it's <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it, he has a very sardonic, satirical headspace mm-hmm. as reflected yeah. in his writing. You can kind of, you know, probably a less funny American version of Gary Steingart, who's also, you know, kind of a Russian influenced writer. Um, you know, Saunders has said in in an interview, he's like, writing is to not condescend the imaginary reader. Imagine if someone is writing a letter to you, and if if it's full of stupid repetition, it would be vaguely insulting to your intelligence when the goal should be to captivate the reader. So he doesn't want to, like, try and sugarcoat is the way I interpret that. I, I agree with that. And he doesn't, he also doesn't believe in any extraneous explanation. Like there's, 
there's like no context. You just you just go, jump right into the stories like <laughs> as as they're they're happening. You know, like when when my youngest was really little, she would start these stories like if you were in her mind. Like, <laughs> It would sound like it was the middle of what was happening, but right. you know, she just thought you knew what she was thinking. So, <laughs> and and I and I got that same feeling from from him. Yeah, you know, I I think that's a really astute observation because I feel the same way. Some of his stories are like driving up to an intersection just after a car wreck has happened, and you're trying to figure out what the what happened, right? Right. No yes. context, total surprise, total unexpected, and probably his first story in this collection is probably the most kind of illustrative of that it's Mm -hmm. called victory lap yep and it's about um it's a short story it's not very long and (laughs) well these are short stories so it's a short short story (laughs) (laughs) um it's a, a teenage girl is at home alone and she is the the victim in an attempted abduction and he writes this story from her perspective from the abductor's perspective and the perspective of the teenage boy who lives next door, who kind of, I think, has a crush on her, right? Right, yeah. Um, and it's just... And who a, witnesses all of this. Witnesses all this. And, and there's stuff going through all three of their heads. Like, right. as this is playing out, what would be going through the young girl's head? What is going through the abductor's head? Which I thought was probably the most entertaining. And then, <laughs> which is totally weird, right? And then right. that teenage boy who's like, do I be a hero? Do I not be a hero? You know, kind of thing. And just as you said, it is, there's precious little context in this story before he hits you with it, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there is even a nod, you know, you mentioned his love for the, the Russian writers and Dostoevsky and all of that. And right. there's even a nod in this story to that, where there's the Russian church is across the street and, right. uh, you know, that's kind of the most description in any of these stories. <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, that's probably the first story where you realize whether you can deal with the rest of the stories in the book or not. And, um, a yeah, lot of he, people could. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the other, the other thing about these stories too, is that it's when you end them, they, you, it's, he doesn't tie everything up in a pretty bow and, right. you know, sunshine and roses, and then you can move on. Right. It, they just kind of end like it's like okay i'm done writing this now so i'm gonna move on (laughs) (laughs) yes on to the next traffic accident at the next intersection (laughs) so uh we thought we would each talk about a a story each that we liked what was one Mm -hmm. that you liked so i liked the story called puppy it's Mm -hmm. one of the older stories that's uh in in the collection it was published in 2007 and it tells, it juxtaposes two families. So the main characters are both women. They're both mothers, Maria and Callie. And Maria has this picture-perfect family, and they want to adopt a puppy. And Callie is the less-than-perfect mom, wife, and her husband owns a pet shop and when the pets are not sold, the husband murders the pets and, <laughs> and doesn't laugh. give us, does, yeah, does not give a second thought to it. It's, it's better for the pets because what are they going to, you know, 
they're going to suffer. So Maria brings her her two children over to Callie's house because they're going to adopt this puppy. And she kind of sees the squalor that Callie and her family live in. And then she notices there is a little boy who is chained to a tree in the backyard because the little boy, Callie's son, has a habit of running onto the freeway and playing chicken with the cars (laughs) on the freeway. And so he likes to be outside. So Callie thinks, well, if I chain him to the tree, he will be outside and he'll be good. You know, he'll be happy and he'll be good and he'll be safe. Right. But Maria doesn't see it that way. So the thing, the thing that I liked about this story is the way he sets up, first of all, the, the separation of the classes, right. You know, where, you know, you have this upper, you know, middle-class family and then this, you know, struggling family. So the way he sets that up, but also that, um, the perception like, you know, Maria doesn't have any understanding of why this family operates the way it does or why, why this little boy, you know, he's not being chained to the tree because he's a CPS case. He's, <laughs> the mom really thinks, that, you know, in her best thinking, this is the safest place for her child. Right. And, and for her child to be as healthy as he can be. Um, but it's all the, the, that's perception just isn't there. And I, I just thought it was really interesting the way, the way that he did that. And, you know, it was just, it just resonated with me. Yeah. So again, like on the surface, some kind of strange characters and strange Mm -hmm. decision making, strange judgments. Um, but a poignant, story underneath right yeah absolutely it reminded me kind of like a coen brothers <laughs> right. like they would make a movie out of this story right. and francis mcdormand would play one of the moms i mean you know <laughs> i just um yeah I, I just yeah i just i i i felt very you know like my heart kind of went out to to both the moms yeah. you know they're both in this you know untenable situation you know, where the one mom's trying to get the family to adopt the puppy and the other mom is just thinking that I, I, she can't even understand the circumstances that she's seeing around her. Right. Right. So I think that's a Francis McDormand (laughs) playing one of the moms would be awesome to see. Um, (laughs) Well, I read a story that um, is a little bit different. Um, It's a little bit more explicitly satirical and shorter. It's one of the shorter stories in the book. And you mentioned earlier, we should point out to our readers, this is a collection of stories that he's written over between from like the mid nineties to the late 20, early 2010s or what have you. Right. Um, most of them were published in the New Yorker. Um, the one I'm about to talk about came out in McSweeney's, I think in the early two thousands and it's called exhortation. And, um, you know, the, the story is very brief. A manager named Todd pens a motivational memo to his work team that I think is just like this triumph of toxic positivity um, <laughs> for a workplace that while it is never identified, you don't know what the workplace is, it turns out to be a very dark and ominous place to work. And so um, 
you know, it resonated with me for a couple of reasons. One is we've all been that newbie in a workplace who gets memos or communications from someone higher up that is just saying, you know, grin and bear it, or, you know, <laughs> it's, things are going to be just fine, even though you look around <laughs> you and you're like, what, what, what's fine about this? And um, so we all have that experience. And then I'm also just very cognizant as I've moved up in my career into positions where I've managed people um, to be careful about how I communicate with them so that they don't think I'm the stupid out of touch manager. <laughs> um, and I'm not it's, always perfect. That's my fear every week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I make mistakes all the time, especially during COVID. Um, You know, I think a lot of us who are in workplaces, communication became much more careful and fraught during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, And this just really, I think, resonated with me for that. It's more explicitly funny. It's more explicitly satire. I don't know that you're supposed to take anything deep and meaningful from this story. Um, But I think a lot of people would enjoy it. Would would this be something similar to what you see in the office? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. The the TV I don't, series. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. My family loves that show, and I don't. It's not <laughs> my thing, but um, it is. It, it's entirely that. Maybe a little bit more serious than that, but that kind of like deadpan delivery um, of just ridiculous, stupid management kind of stuff. You know. Well, and again, it's, you know, how, how interesting we're near that story published in 2000 is so resonates today, 21 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you those know. universal themes, we are, we're always dealing with things that are very human and emotional, um, in our lives, but office workplaces or many workplaces are not designed to be human and emotional. Right. <laughs> They're designed That's, to be cubicle oriented, that kind of absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And when, you know, we, we all, I mean, I'm sure the listeners out there have, you know, experience with this too. You know, you're working in an office with all these different personalities and all, you know, people with different sensibilities and backgrounds and everything. And, um, it's really difficult to <laughs> communicate. <laughs> it is. That's Sometimes. Why, that's why we're not always perfect. And yeah. then um, you and I both wanted to speak about the titular story, 10th of December, which yes. rounds out the book, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Caught my heart. Well, I'll, I'll just kind of give a brief summary and then we can spin from there. You know, I found it an almost comic, almost tragic story of this young boy who goes off on a fiercely cold winter day to play in the woods. And all he's got with him is this pellet gun, you know, and he's going to go out and do what little boys in the woods with pellet guns do, which is have imaginary battles against bad guys. Right. Yeah. Um, and then at the same time, there's this middle-aged man who's kind of our age and he's dying of cancer. And he goes off into the same woods on the same day to basically find a place to die. He's, yep. there's a boulder up there and he wants to get out out there and that's where he wants to die he wants to be away from his family spare them the grief and spare them a whole bunch of the hospital stuff and what have you it'll just be a peaceful way to die um but then you know as you might expect in this story from george saunders their paths cross and plans get foiled (laughs) um and uh you know it it, the, the story takes a turn literally um but what did you think of it you know, I I really liked this story. I really, really did. Um, I didn't necessarily see 
a whole lot of humor in it. And, you know, the, that, that undertone, that sarcastic undertone, I thought was much more subtle right. in, in this story. And, you know, having, I imagine this little boy to be about 10 mm-hmm. and having taught that 10 year olds for so many years, I just, I love the joy that he goes out into the woods and he's got this whole pretend world and these right. villains that he's going to conquer. And, and then he, you know, he brings in this little girl who's in his class that he, he likes and he has a crush on and he's going to save her from these villains. And, you know, the innocence with which he goes out, it's like, you that, know, I loved. Yeah. It's like that. I had that same reaction. I agree. It's not as, um, openly funny it it is much more subtle it's more a human story but Mm -hmm. i was thinking of that scene from a christmas story with the little boy (laughs) and his red rider bb gun and all the (laughs) villains who are trying to attack his house that's exactly what was going through my mind yeah and i mean i think i had a similar maybe not that exact reference but (laughs) you know that 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 definitely that similar you know picture in in my head and then the the um the the older gentleman, you know, the the pathos, which with how about how he's described and, right. you know, that he's in his mind, he goes out to do what he's going to do in a, the most altruistic manner possible, you know, and he imagines these conversations with his kids and what they're going to say about him and blah, blah, blah. You know, he just it you know, he thinks he's doing the best thing for his family right. by, by sparing them the burden of his death. Right. And, you know, just tugs at your heartstrings. Cause you know, could you imagine what, it, what his kids, you know, what they would think, you know, that would probably be horrible for them. But, and then when you have the intersection of the little boy and the man, um, you know, and they both, they both take a turn. Their, their attitude changes. Their, right. their whole um, feeling about life changes right. because of their interaction. And the way he describes, I don't want to give it away in case people want to read it, but in, the way he describes that whole scene is very, um, you know, you, it was, I thought it was the best writing in the book. I I agree. I I really think this is there's a reason why this is the kind of story that wraps everything up, I think, and why it got mm-hmm. the title. I also think it's, you know, a story as you're reading, again, not giving anything away, it kind of shows you the subtle differences between innocence and naivete. And then at some point instinct kicks in in this story mm-hmm. and drives part of part of the, the, the plot. So, um, yeah, this is the last story in the collection. It's called 10th of December. And I think we both equally found it probably the most moving of the collection, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a really nice way to end, you know, it was the last story in the, in the collection, in the book. And I thought it was a really good way to close. I think so too. And, you know, so after I finished, you know, we both kind of do research on books when we're about Mm -hmm. to talk to them on the podcast. So I found a review that came out at the time. Most of the time I'm going to kind of review spots that are very kind of literary, right? 
I'm right. doing air quotes with my fingers right now because <laughs> I'm a librarian and a collection <laughs> development librarian, and that's what we do. But I found um, a review that I think that actually speaks to me the most about this particular collection actually came from the magazine Entertainment Weekly of all spots. Hmm. Um, And they say that, you know, talking about this collection, Saunders is the master of joy bombs, little explosions of grin-stimulating genius that he buries throughout his deeply thoughtful, endlessly entertaining flights of imagination. And I thought that 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 resonated with me in terms of describing describing this collection because that's exactly what it is. It's as you say, he doesn't give context. This isn't funny. Everything's happy and clapping at the end kind of stories, but there are these little bits that he places in there for the reader to kind of grin, even just inwardly. And even in some of the most heavy, heavy topical stories. Yeah. And I I would agree with that. And I love that they referenced his imagination because there are so many points throughout each one of the stories where his his own imagination mm-hmm. becomes that of the characters, yeah. you know, and um, it does. It makes you makes you smile, makes you laugh. <laughs> so. Well, this is the collection 10th of December by George Saunders. You can find it in the library or just about anywhere else now. Um, and I think we both recommend this one, right? I definitely. <laughs> okay. Well, reader, hope you got something good to read from our list or from yours. Let us know what you're reading via our website or on Instagram and take a moment. We'll be right back with our conversation. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, Books and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. Welcome back, O2 Starved listeners. We are at one of our favorite portions of the podcast, the conversation portion, the C of your ABCs. And we are really excited this episode to have Lauren Delaunay from the Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association join us. Welcome, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. You're, you happen to be um, the first guest of that we've had two people from, from the same organization. We actually interviewed Molly Trous from ECA many, many, many yes. episodes ago. Um, so we're kind of coming for full circle, but what really got my attention and Stacy's attention is that you've launched a podcast with ECA. So, you know, we're podcasters, you're a podcaster. We're kind of anxious <laughs> to talk about that at some point, but first let's do, let's do what we do with all of our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your origin story and what brought you to Mono County or Inyo County or the Eastern Sierra, wherever you are? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm in Bishop, which is Inyo County, even though I spend plenty of time in Mono County, as I'm <laughs> sure lots of people who live on the East side go back and forth as if they're essentially the same County, but right. um, <laughs> I'm from the East coast, um, first New Jersey and then North Carolina. I went to college in North Carolina and Um, And it was, I was such an indoorsy person. I cannot stress enough how much I hated doing things outside. Um, But when I was in college, I got introduced to climbing through the gym at my school. And I got hooked really after seeing uh, some pictures of Yosemite in a National Geographic. Um, (laughs) And something about it just intrigued me so much. And I started climbing in the gym there. And then pretty soon started climbing 
um, outside all over up and down the East Coast, North Carolina, West Virginia, Kentucky, and um, just knew that I needed to be spending more time outside in wild places. And so after I graduated from college, I spent a lot of time bouncing around the West. I lived in Alaska, Montana, Utah, Colorado, kind of some of the wow. same states in different places multiple times, <laughs> but I always knew that I wanted to end up in Yosemite. And right. so that was kind of my introduction to California and the Sierra Nevada in general. Um, I spent three seasons working in Yosemite Valley on the search and rescue team um, and then kind of calling Bishop my winter seasonal home. And now I live in Bishop full time and um, love climbing in the Sierra, love Bishop in every season. <laughs> it's getting a little <laughs> hot in town now, but um, but we can soon escape to higher elevations. And yeah, so climbing is my main sport. But now that I live out here, that um, I feel like I've gotten to do so many different types of things. I ski, I run, I like to take my dog on adventures where we can find places without other people. And yeah, I just love it over here. Did when you moved out here, when you finally got to Yosemite, was it everything you had dreamed of? What, were there any differences between what you thought it was going to be and what it turned out to be? Mm, I think that everything was bigger than I thought it was <laughs> going to be. I had been to other, you know, mountainous parts of the U.S. before, but I'd never seen anything as big and beautiful as El Cap and. Couldn't wait to climb on the walls there. And yeah, it was, I had such a magical first trip to Yosemite many years ago and um, getting to drive into the valley uh, in the dark and not see anything and then wake up there surrounded by those beautiful walls and the waterfalls and the trees were bigger than anything I'd ever seen. And <laughs> yeah, it was really, really magical. It's a lasting impression, right? <laughs> and we should point out to our listeners, most of you know this already, on the Eastern Sierra, we, we're at the time of year now, especially the day that we're recording this, that the passes start open opening. Right. The, the snow is melted. This year was a low snow year to begin with, so the passes open a little earlier. Um, but, you know, everyone waits around for Tioga to open and for the main eastern entrance into the Yosemite to open. It's a really exciting thing. It's almost like Christmas <laughs> in a way for many of us because it is just such a magical place to visit. It's like going through the back of a closet into Narnia for a lot of people, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. And I imagine that, I mean, it's Tioga Pass isn't open now, but even by next week or when this show comes out, it might be open and mm -hmm. um, then we can see the west side of the Sierra too. <laughs> and so how did you, how did you go from, you know, climbing and working in the, the Yosemite Valley to what you're doing now? Um, well, I was working for a website that does gear reviews for a long time. And that's what originally allowed me to spend so much time in Yosemite because I was working from my computer so I could spend a lot of time out there. And then I ended up working on that search and rescue team for a couple of summers. And then it's just such a natural transition to go to the east side in the winter <laughs> and where it's nice and warm and dry and things like that. But um, Yosemite is nice in the winter, but it's pretty different. And the rock climbing season yeah. really in Bishop is the winter. Right. And so 
then I started spending a lot of time out here. And then this winter, after knowing that I was going to leave the park service and try to stay in Bishop full time, um, I started working at the Mammoth Lakes Visitor Center for ECA. And that was kind of my introduction. But all along, I'd been talking to the folks there and they knew how excited I was about writing and communications. And I also was on the, I'm on the board of the Bishop Area Climbers Coalition and had done their communications um, for a while. And so kind of recovering from COVID, once there was room at ECF for someone to move back into that communications position, then I was in a really lucky position to be able to move into that. That's great. So the podcast, was that your idea? I mean, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So we just launched a new podcast called The Interpreter. And it was kind of an idea that Jeff Gabriel, our executive director, had said, we'd always thought this would be cool, but we've never had anyone who could do it. And I'd been lucky enough to do a little bit of editing for the American Alpine Journal's podcast called The Cutting Edge. So I felt like I had just enough information to maybe try to <laughs> make it work. I knew a little bit about editing. I knew that how they recorded their things and um, thought that, yeah, it would be a really cool project to try. And so we started just brainstorming a list of interesting people in the Eastern Sierra to talk to. Um, a lot of their work has stuff to do with things that ECA is also involved in, um, backcountry travel or conservation and things like that. But um, yeah, it's been a really interesting adventure. I knew a little bit about how to kind of get the podcast to the point of a, having an audio file that you could listen to, but actually <laughs> learning how to um, publish it and get it out and spread the word about it and make sure it's on all the platforms that people use to listen to podcasts was harder than I imagined. Um, but now that we've got it going, I think it's working, but, um, yeah, but I've, I've, yeah, I just feel lucky that I've had so much freedom, um, to work on it as my big project this spring. Cause it's been really fun and I think it'll help draw people to ECA and our mission. And, um, yeah, that's, it's the way that a lot of people get there news and information these days. That's awesome. It is, right? And a lot of people, what we found, and I think others around here have found, is that a lot of people listen to podcasts getting to us. A lot of people get to us from Southern California or the Bay Area mm -hmm. or points north and that spend a lot of time behind the wheel and um, mm -hmm. are listening to podcasts about the area on the way to kind of build up their excitement. So I'm really excited you guys are um, starting one to be part of this whole canon of talking about the Eastern Sierra in a responsible way. We should remind our listeners, Eastern Sierra Interpretive Association works with the Forest Service and has the visitor centers, I think in Lone Pine and Mammoth Lakes where you were. Mm -hmm. And people can come in, they can get their Forest Service permits, they can, there's bookstores there. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not just the visitor center itself. As you said, there's a lot of interpretation that goes on in the in the outdoors as well. And this podcast, hope I imagine, will help put a spotlight on stuff that you guys are doing. Like I noticed you you interviewed Joe Reedhead, who wrote the book about Half Dome, which I think mm -hmm. you guys sell in your bookstore. I, I really enjoyed that that interview. So is that kind of the kind of guests that you will get going forward? or? Yeah, so the a little spoiler, the next one that'll be coming about is about climbing. And there's two mini interviews in that one, one with the Climbing Rangers, which is a program that ECL launched two years ago with help of the Climbers Coalition, Friends of the Inyo, and all the land managers in the agency. Love and the, the other, Rangers. Oh, I know. It's such a cool program. And then the other half of the episode is with Katie Goodwin, who works for the Access Fund, which is a national level organization, but she's um, our kind of California um, part of that organization. And she lives here in Bissup. And so 
And then we've got some other ones with other local authors. We've got one coming up with a fly fishing guide talking about fishing season, and which is interesting for me because that is a very new sport for me. And so <laughs> I really learned a lot during that one. And um, yeah, just kind of people doing interesting things outdoors. Like you said, trying to get people excited about the Eastern Sierra, trying to make a connection between um, our bookstores, which are places where you can buy things, but really are places where you can learn things mm-hmm. and make that connection between the things that you might find there and who those people are. And know there's local authors in here, there's local experts, and this is those bookstores are and visitor centers are places where you can connect with those people. Right, right. I should also say EC is one of the organizations of many in the Eastern Sierra that is currently working to message about responsible recreation in our area, right? And you mentioned the the climbing rangers. That's one of the things that they do, if I remember correctly. Like, don't drive on the brush. If you take it in with you, take it out with you. All the kind of stuff that locals understand. Um, but people who might just be visiting for the first time and passing through don't fully understand. So getting that message out is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think locals have a lot to learn too. There's things that maybe used to be okay when this was a really remote place and there weren't a lot of people, things like burying your waste. That is a thing that a lot of people still think is acceptable, but there's just too many people out here now. And so now really the only acceptable thing to do is to pack it out. And like, so I feel like even locals have, you know, things to learn. There's updated nice. things for learning about the desert and the ways that we do things differently here than you might do even up in the Alpine where the right. environment is totally different. There's more moisture, there's more things like that. And so there's things that I feel like everyone can learn, but yeah, the climbing rangers do a lot to target that population of people who is learning how to climb in gyms and then coming up here to climb outdoors. And we want them to do that because it's such an awesome experience, but we just want them to be able to do it responsibly. And there's a lot of things that they just don't know that they don't know yet because it's such a new experience for them. And so that's a lot of who they spend their time targeting. Yep. Lots of conversation about poop in the Eastern Sierra this year. Yeah, we talk about poop (laughs) a lot. It was COVID. It was pandemic. A lot of people weren't traveling elsewhere. They were coming here. And they, like you right. say, they just need to learn. So, Lauren, we talked about what you do and what brought you here. So, and probably a little bit about what you do for fun. But we always ask this question when you're not working for ECF, what are you doing? <laughs> well, I wear a lot of hats in the Eastern Sierra. Like I mentioned, I'm on the board of the Bishop Area Climbers Coalition. I was the communications director, and now I'm the vice president. Um, and then on top of that, I am just finishing up writing my first book and (laughs) yeah, which I'm really excited about. It's an anthology about the history of women climbing in Yosemite. Wow. Very cool. And yeah, I'm really excited about it. It'll be out next year, um, published by Mountaineers Books, which I think is a really cool organization to work with. They're also a nonprofit. They do lots of cool interpretive programs. They're based out of the Pacific Northwest, Seattle area, and have a great history of publishing good climbing literature. And um, that's kind of been my um, way I've been connecting to climbing recently. Less time outdoors, more time writing about it, talking about it. But um, I can't wait. That's coming out next year. Yeah, it's a books have moved really slowly. (laughs) And so I pretty much just finished up all the content production side of it and now we're getting copy edited and designing and all those sort of things that I'm learning about really for the first time and so (laughs) and then I imagine it'll be out in March 
of next year. Oh, that's great. So maybe so, I can have you up at the Mono County Library to talk about it. When oh, that would launch, be so right? fun. Yeah, uh, I would love yeah, to do that. We'd Good. love that. I'm going to write that one down. Awesome. So when you when you climb, Lauren, are you are you using ropes? Or are you doing free climbing? That yeah, was so, a big thing. Yeah, so I'm mostly a rope climber. Bishop has a lot of world class bouldering. Mm-hmm. Um, and the buttermilks and the tablelands. Um, but I mostly like to climb long routes. And so I really like climbing in the winter in the Owens River Gorge is a big sport climbing yeah. destination. But then my really favorite time to climb in Bishop is the spring, summer, and fall. So I love climbing in Pine Creek. And once, yeah, the roads into the mountains start opening, I just love the alpine scrambling in this area. <laughs> I love going up to high elevation and climbing on granite. That's kind of the thing that is my favorite type of climbing is really anything on granite, which is the yes. high Sierra, which is Yosemite, which is Pine mm-hmm. Creek. Um, and that's really my favorite type of climbing to do, but I like to sample all of it. It's nice that it feels like you can climb in Bishop pretty much any time of the year if you pick the right elevation. So you right. can climb anywhere, you know, from 4,000 feet up to 14,000 feet. So at any point in the year, something's at a really nice temperature. <laughs> <laughs> with the, with the, with COVID and with, as Christopher mentioned, all the people that we had coming up here last year, were you ever, did you ever feel like there was encroachment like on your territory by you know, all these other people? It's been really busy in Bishop the past couple of years, but our climbing rangers, one of the things they do is count cars at mm. the main parking areas for, um, yeah, the Tablelands, Owens River Gorge, and Buttermilks mostly because Pine Creek is not as much of a winter destination. But they noticed at least a 50% decline this year. Oh, wow. I should say this climbing season, right? So from this past November mm-hmm. through now, at least a 50% decline in a, uh, how many cars are in those places. And then going out, they're noticing a huge decline in people. So, you know, at the beginning of COVID, I feel like people didn't really know what to do. Um, and there was a lot of messaging about trying to stay away from small rural areas um, to try to protect those more vulnerable populations who mm-hmm. don't have the same access to healthcare and things like that. And so I think that was actually really successful. Like we saw this <laughs> huge decline in climbers um, this time of year. And so that's something that I'm really proud of the climbing community for, um, because I feel like I know that people want to be here. um, (laughs) And I feel like people were being really respectful of hearing that, you know, rural populations are a little more vulnerable in some ways to things like COVID because we don't have the same hospital capacity, you know, we don't have the same access to different hospitals and things like that. And so, yeah, I actually felt like this was a really nice year to be a local climbing on the east side because (laughs) there was, yeah, a a very noticeable difference. Nice. I will say um, on your topic of climbing at higher elevations, I'm always really impressed when we're out hiking at elevation, like at Bishop's Pass or up at Rock Creek or any of the other, Pine Creek even, those are some steep trails out of there. You know, I'm a little bit older than the average person, and so we I kind of just huff and puff my way up hills. And when I see people who have come up as far as I have, and then they start climbing, I'm like, holy cow, you guys go for it. Like, you know, that's that's real dedication to climbing where you want to climb if you have to hike a long way to get to where you want to start scrambling, as you say. Yeah, you need to right. be a pretty dedicated climber to climb in the High Sierra. There's a lot of hiking. There's some great spots without tons of hiking, but then, but yeah, that High Sierra climbing usually involves quite a bit of 
hoofing it out to where you want to go. <laughs> and, and, and with all the gear associated, all the oh, ropes yeah. and stuff. That's The pack gets a lot heavier. Dedication. <laughs> it does. That's, that's awesome. So besides climbing, are you, do you ski? Do you come up to the Mammoth Mountains and yeah, ski? Yeah, I ski. Or? I haven't had a resort pass since I've lived here, but I love to backcountry ski. I'm oh. a very mellow skier, so I really like that kind of mellow rolling hills backcountry. Yeah. I'm definitely not an extreme skier. I learned as an adult, and so I feel like yes. I'm really just survival ski. Like I um, <laughs> can get down most things. I'm not super graceful, but I just, yeah, I like to be outside in the winter. I really like to ice climb, which there's not a lot of in the Eastern Sierra, but Lee Vining Canyon is actually mm-hmm. a great spot for that. Um, and then, yeah, I love trail running. I've got a big old dog who loves to run and, um, is a really good companion. So I love kind of poking around in the tungsten Hills down here, all around Rock Creek. Um, yeah. And now that I, we just got, we have a COVID dog, which is a dog that we got right. during quarantine. And so, um, now anyways, like he's like a 70 pound German shepherd dog and he needs a lot of exercise. So it's helpful for getting out on some big, long cardio based missions because that's his favorite thing to do. Oh, <laughs> you would know all about great. that Stace, right? I do. I have a COVID dog too. And <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's the same. Yeah. <laughs> So, Lauren, we also ask our guests, um, you know, about books they're reading or books they would recommend. Do you have any, aside from the book that you're writing, um, that we're anxious <laughs> to, to learn more about next year, um, do you have any titles that you would like to, to tell our readers about, our listeners about? Yes. Um, I'm a big nonfiction reader. I pretty much only read nonfiction, but the one that I've been re- read so far this year that I feel like I recommend to everyone, especially folks who live in the West is called down river. It's by Heather Hansman. And she's a phenomenal writer. And in this book, she chronicles her adventure. She pretty much rafts more or less by herself in sections, the full length of the green river from the wind wow. river range in Wyoming down to the confluence with the Colorado in Canyonlands, And, but she takes months to do it. And all along the way, she's interviewing ranchers and people on, Uh, in Native American communities and all these different raft guides and all these different people who have an interest in the water and the water rights in this section of the world, which is really complicated and fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that she's able to say that she kind of came into it a little biased towards certain user groups. And then once she got out there and was meeting them and talking with them, that she was able to really learn a lot. And I really appreciated her vulnerability and because writing about the environment and writing about water is really political and really um, personal for a lot of people. And so I really loved this book. I've read a lot about water and this is definitely one of the best ones that I feel like I've read. Great. Um, And then probably the other one, this is a really interesting book kind of tied back to podcasts. So I'm a huge radio lab fan and um, one of their producers, Lulu Miller, wrote a book called Why Fish Don't Exist. And it is really fascinating. And she covers all these different topics. And a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, how we decide what animals grow in what groups and what are fish. And it's all tied back to this 
scientist, but she makes it so personal and ties it back to finding meaning in her own life. And I think she says that one of the main things is what happens when humans try to make order of a chaotic world. And it's really fascinating. And I loved her writing. And definitely if you're a radio lab person, (laughs) it's, you'll notice a lot of things in there that are really similar to the style of that show, um, which I loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that that book made a lot of best of lists last year in 2020 mm-hmm. when it came out. And it's on my list. You're probably like the fifth person who's recommended that book. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, clearly, I need to move it up my pile because it does sound very, very interesting. Yeah. And then I feel like the last one that I've been is the one that I'm telling everyone to read right now is The Undocumented Americans. And that's by Carla Conejo Villaviencio. And she has a really fascinating writing style, and she's very aware that in traditional journalism, the writer is not supposed to get involved with the people that they're writing about, right? You're supposed to be this observer. And she's like, I just can't do that. And so she's (laughs) blending this kind of memoir journalism story where she's learning about undocumented people who live in our country, but then also finding ways to like get involved with them. And it's very personal based on a lot of her family history and Um, But she somehow is able to address the fact that this is not typical journalism because she's very personally attached to the people in the book, but Mm -hmm. in a way that just makes you feel for them so well. Also, I just, yeah, it's a really interesting writing style and it's different than a lot of other nonfiction. It kind of blurs that line um, in which you just feel like she's an active participant in it. Um, Mm -hmm. And she writes a lot like someone talks. And so it's really easy to get absorbed into it because it's very casual, but also really passionate. And it feels like a lot of the time that like she's yelling at you while you're reading, (laughs) but because she's so fired up about what she's talking about that it just, yeah, sucks you right in. She does. She, that's another book that was getting a lot of attention last year. Mm -hmm. It was a book award finalist, national book award finalist, And she does, it's a, it's nonfiction that builds empathy, right? It's, it's, it's not a big book. It's a small book. It's very approachable. And that's actually been turning over at the library quite regularly since we got it. So I know a lot of people are reading that book book right now. That's the undocumented Americans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's Check great. That out. Well, well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. And we really appreciate your time with everything that you're doing and coming to talk to us. Awesome. Thank you. Thank yeah. You. Thanks for joining and us. We will link the books that you recommended as well as your podcast and Isia in our show notes. So our listeners know where to find you and we'll check out your podcast as well. Awesome. Yeah, we'll be updating our events things at ECA here soon now that things are opening back up and we're hoping to do more in-person events. And so for folks interested in, um, yeah, interpretation and learning things, we'll hopefully be able to do more things as a community together again soon. That's great. I hope so. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for joining us for this our 50th episode. So thanks for sticking with us for 50 episodes and hopefully there'll be 50 more to come (laughs) in the meantime. (laughs) Should we take a break? I feel like sometimes like, you know, a week or two off would be okay, but you know, I don't know. 50 episodes (laughs) is awesome. It's a lot of work. We don't, 
we we have enjoyed it and listeners we hope you have enjoyed it as well please remember to check out our instagram page at o2 starved and our website at oxygenstarvedpodcast.com leave a comment let us know what you're reading and what you're up to these days as things do start to open up thanks so much and we'll see you again soon Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.